You're listening to Purpose Inspired, a podcast series by myself, Wayne Visser. This season is based on a book called The Quest for Sustainable Business, an epic journey in search of corporate responsibility. Cycles and cradles, faster, further and higher. Stakeholder politics. Despite my Dutch heritage, my father was born in Holland and I have a Dutch passport. I speak Afrikaans, which is a version of the Dutch language. I was 27 years old before I first visited the country. This was at the time that I was establishing KPMG's new environmental unit in South Africa. And the Netherlands was, and still is, I believe, the largest and strongest of KPMG's national sustainability practices. My first meeting was with George Mollenkamp, then chairman of KPMG Global Sustainability Services and special professor of business studies at the University of Amsterdam. He generously shared their intellectual resources with me, including an environmental self-assessment auditing tool that KPMG had developed on behalf of the Dutch government. I learned that KPMG had, in fact, conducted the first environmental audits in Europe and was already a pioneer in the field. They were also emerging leaders in non-financial reporting and report verification, working with Shell, Philips, Unilever and many others to help define an approach to triple bottom line reporting that the Global Reporting Initiative would later formalise and refine. KPMG's first international sustainability reporting survey was conducted in 1993 and has been repeated every three years since. Today, this research database provides unbridled insights into historical trends in sustainability reporting and corporate social and environmental performance. Alongside Mollenkamp, one of the people who has been intimately involved in these developments is Jennifer Janssen-Rogers, a long-serving senior manager in the Dutch sustainability practice. Janssen Rogers has, perhaps more than any other person over the past 20 years, been at the heart of evolving sustainability accounting, auditing and reporting agendas, not only in the Netherlands but globally. It was for this reason that I asked her to write multiple entries for my book The A to Z of Corporate Social Responsibility, entries on assurance, auditing, environmental auditing the ISAE 3000 standard for assurance engagements, non-financial reporting, report verification and social auditing, as well as the chapter on CSR in the Netherlands in the World Guide to CSR. It was from Janssen Rogers that I learned that Dutch socio-economic development was based on the Rhineland model, a stakeholder-based approach for economic development which promotes the principles of solidarity and cooperation between the owners of companies, government, employees and customers. It provides a balance between free market forces and social and environmental responsibility for long-term societal stability. Intervention by the state in labour and the labour market is encouraged to ensure just working conditions for employees and to prevent social inequality. 
This model has developed further into the Polder model, which describes the current consensus-based decision-making model in Dutch politics and economics. Its use is thought to date back from the Wassenaar Accord of 1982, an agreement between government, employers and companies to revitalize the economy by increasing employment through wage restraint and shorter working hours. This tripartite relationship also supports a strong tradition of volunteering. Among the unique partnership this model has seeded is the Social and Economic Council of the Netherlands, which brings together employers' representatives, union representatives and independent experts to help shape Dutch policy and legislation on social and economic affairs. I have visited the Netherlands many times since 1997. For example, in 2000 for an ISO 14001 meeting, a year later for an environment, health and safety audit of a chemical plant, in 2010 at the invitation of the CSR Academy and to give training for Aliander, in 2011 to lecture at the Open University and hold workshops for MVO Nederland and to give the keynote address at the Dutch National Sustainability Congress. In 2011, I also lectured at the university in Nijmegen and many others. If I try to distill what I've learned from these visits, they probably fall into five main areas. Mobility, climate change, finance, leadership and cradle-to-cradle practices. So let me try to unpack these insights one by one. Cycle mania and climate defence. Anyone visiting the Netherlands for the first time is immediately struck by a strange phenomenon, bicycle mania. Not that bicycles are a novelty, but the Dutch have turned cycling into a national pastime and a cultural icon. Wherever you go in the country, there are swift-flowing rivers of cyclists that threaten to sweep you up in their tide if you're an unsuspecting pedestrian from abroad. Outside all of the stations are colourful reefs of bicycles, stacked layers deep and stories high, on a scale unlike anything you have ever seen before. The statistics back up the visceral experience. The population of the Netherlands is just 16 million, roughly twice that of New York or London. Yet they make more cycle journeys than 300 million Americans, 65 million British and 20 million Australians put together. And they do so with greater safety than cyclists in any of those countries. Londoners only make around 2% of journeys by bike, and New Yorkers even less at only around 0.6% of commutes. Meanwhile, in the Netherlands, on an average working day, 5 million people make an average of 14 million cycle journeys. So why, in an age desperate for more sustainable transport solutions, has the Netherlands succeeded so spectacularly where others have tried and failed? I am no expert, but there seem to be a few obvious reasons. First, the country is relatively flat. Second, it is fairly small, so vehicle space is at a premium. Third, the government have invested heavily in supporting infrastructure, bike lanes, storage facilities and so on. 
And fourth, cycling is complemented by a well-developed public transport system of trains, buses and trams. There is also the very important issue of safety, both perceived and actual. The accident statistics show that the Netherlands is the safest place in the world to cycle. There is obviously a safety and numbers effect, and good infrastructure design is vital. But there are also legal sanctions. For example, there is an interesting law in the Netherlands called Strict Liability, or Article 185 WVW. What the law does, in essence, is to make car drivers financially responsible in the event of a crash with bikers. Of course, there is a cultural effect as well. Since everyone cycles regularly, there is a prevailing empathy and safety awareness on the roads. A second distinctive feature of the Netherlands is that most of the country is below sea level and much of it comprises land reclaimed from the sea. This makes the Dutch especially vulnerable to climate change and the anticipated rise in sea levels, storm activity and flooding. However, it also makes them one of the most prepared and technically advanced countries in terms of climate change mitigation and adaptation. Their complex system of dikes and pumping stations have been built up over centuries and significantly reinforced over the last 60 years through the Zeder Zee project, as well as the Delta project in Zeeland after the flood disaster of 1953. I fully expect that Dutch geoengineers will be in high demand all over the world in the decades to come. But it is not only in adaptation that the Dutch have something to teach us. They have been very progressive in climate mitigation as well. To meet its commitments to reduce greenhouse gas emissions by 30% from 1990 levels by 2020, the government introduced a range of policy instruments for both industry and citizens in its work program called Clean and Efficient. This includes measures to reduce energy use, for example, higher taxes on fuel and emission-related variable taxation for cars, and to stimulate renewable energy, mainly wind and biofuels, to achieve 20% of total energy use, up from 2% in 2007. It has also extended emission trading to sectors that fall outside the European emissions trading scheme. Ethical finance and leading big Third, on the issue of sustainable finance, the Dutch have led with social banks like Triodos and ASN Bank, as well as more mainstream banks like ABN AMRO and Rabobank. I first researched Triodos when I was doing my master's thesis on sustainable finance in 1995 and found their model fascinating. All of their loans and investments are screened on ethical criteria. However, in addition, as a customer, I have the option to link my savings account to investment in causes I believe in, whether that's renewable energy, organic farming or social enterprise, or to take a lower interest rate and pass on the saving in the form of lower interest rate loans to sustainable businesses. Another area of sustainable finance where the Netherlands leads is socially responsible investment. By the end of 2009, the SRI market in the Netherlands was around 396 billion, up 37% from 2009 to 
from 2007 and represented a remarkable 33% of total assets under management. Today it's even higher. While all major Dutch banks offer ethical investment products, Rabobank has been especially progressive, having developed sophisticated rating systems to assess and score the sustainability of companies they are investing in. Rabobank also consistently scores top in their sector in the annual Transparency Benchmark Survey, which assesses sustainability reporting in the Netherlands. The fourth area I want to comment on is the values-based leadership approach that seems to be inspired by the Dutch culture. One supreme example is Paul Polman, then CEO of Unilever. When he launched their Sustainable Living Plan in 2010, it confirmed something Unilever's chief HR officer, Sandy Ogg, said in research I did for Cambridge University. He said there's so much going on now in the world that if you don't have amplification and time compression, then it doesn't rumble. So I call that leading big. You can't let it drool or dribble out in an organization like ours and expect to have any impact. In this case, for Unilever, Pullman's leading big meant seeking to double in size while halving the environmental footprint of their products. In addition, they planned to source 100% of agricultural products sustainably and help a billion people out of poverty. According to Sandiog, Pullman stands out as a leader because he understands the changing global context and expresses empathy in a multi-stakeholder environment. In Pullman's own words, the world has tremendous challenges, the challenges of poverty, of water, of global warming, climate change, and businesses like ours have a role to play in that. And frankly, to me, that is very appealing. Hence, the art of leadership is to look reality in the eye and positively influence someone. More, more importantly, Pullman sees his leadership of Unilever on sustainability issues must be through action. As he puts it, you cannot talk yourself out of things you've behaved yourself into. Philips is another Dutch company that has been showing leadership. As you might expect, with lighting comprising about 50% of their revenues, they have focused strongly on environmental issues. Their EcoVision program contains challenging targets including 25% improvement in the energy efficiency of their operations, a billion euros investment in green innovations, and 30% of revenues from green products. However, they've also started to innovate by supplying products to the so-called bottom-of-the-pyramid markets. For example, Philips collaborated with Sequest Capital, to supply 2.6 million free compact fluorescent lamps to official residences of employees of the Indian Railways. The project is funded through the certified emission reductions, which accrue and help cover product costs. Another example is distance healthcare advancement, carried out by Philips India with the support of a consortium of partners. The project aims to deliver high-quality, low-cost diagnostics to low-income rural communities that are not addressed by the existing healthcare system. To reach its goal, 
They use custom-built teleclinical vans equipped with appropriate diagnostic devices and medicines. In the partnership, Philips Medical Systems supplies appropriate diagnostic equipment to the teleclinical vans, like x-rays, ultrasound, ECG devices, and so on. Another great BOP initiative I came across is the Dutch social enterprise called connectthepipe.org, which is simultaneously promoting local water-saving practices and investing in water access projects in developing countries. Cradle-to-cradle country. A final area in which the Netherlands seems to be making significant progress is on cradle-to-cradle production and consumption. The Dutch government has taken an especially proactive role in promoting cradle-to-cradle practices and the local authority of Venlo aims to be the first cradle-to-cradle region. It is also using cradle-to-cradle principles in its plans for the World Horticultural Expo. At the Dutch National Sustainability Congress, where I keynoted, cradle-to-cradle companies and initiatives were in profusion. Examples ranged from an electric waste truck that uses energy from the waste it collects, to workspaces designed to be carbon neutral and to produce more energy than they consume. Other leaders are OCE, part of Canon, which manufactures cradle-to-cradle certified paper, and Deso, which makes cradle-to-cradle carpets and artificial grass. One cradle-to-cradle product I was especially impressed with was Marmoleum, Forbo's own brand of linoleum, floor covering. It already complies with more environmental quality marks, such as the Nordic Swan, Blue Angel and Nature Plus, than any other flooring product in the world. According to a life cycle assessment by the University of Leiden, Marmoleum is the most sustainable, resilient floor covering in the world. Behind its sustainability credentials is the fact that the product is a natural product made from 97% natural raw materials, 70% of which are rapidly renewable. It also contains 40% recycled content. The key raw materials used in its production are linseed oil, which is taken from the flax plant seed, wood flower from controlled forests, and jute, the natural backing onto which marmoleum is calendared. Marmoleum is biodegradable and can be fully recycled at the end of its useful life. Perhaps it is no coincidence that Michael Braungart, one of the co-originators of the concept of Cradle to Cradle, has taken up a position as chair at the Dutch Research Institute for Transitions at Erasmus University in Rotterdam. In the interview I did with Braungart, he reflected on why the Netherlands has been so proactive on cradle-to-cradle thinking while other countries have lagged behind. According to him, it's because the Dutch never romanticised nature, so it's different to the United Kingdom or Germany. There is no mother nature, because with the next tide they would just swim away. It was always a culture of partnership with nature, learning from nature, and that's what we need. We can learn endlessly from nature, but it's not about romanticizing nature. The second reason why Cradle to Cradle has been so successful, according to Braungart, is that the Netherlands have a culture of support, whereas the Americans, Germans, British and Swedish 
have a culture of control. They assume human beings are bad anyway, and we need to control them to be less bad. But the Dutch culture is a culture of support, because if you don't support your neighbor, you will drown, because then your neighbor couldn't take care of your dyke. Even if you don't like your neighbor, you need to support your neighbor. So cradle to cradle is a culture of support. Braungart contrasts the American company Interface with the Dutch Deso to further illustrate how the Dutch get cradle to cradle. Deso, the second biggest maker of carpets, is different to Interface, which is using recycled PVC with toxic plasticizers. They first say, what is the right thing to do? And then they say, in the year 2016, all their carpets had to be cradle to cradle. So it's no longer about buying less, like all these green labels, or if I don't buy, it's even better. No, it's about the more you buy, the quicker we are changing for the better. So it's a positive agenda, instead of trying to be less bad. The goal is not zero emissions. Even if I would shoot myself right now, I would have emissions. So the zero emission goal you can't achieve anyway. Instead of that, we want beneficial emissions. For such a small nation, the Dutch has always seemed to punch above their weight, whether it is in football or sustainability. At the heart of this achievement, I believe, is their collaborative approach. To illustrate the point, the Netherlands Sustainable Trade Initiative, which has been a mission to transform and mainstream sustainable product markets, does this by promoting investment by coalitions of companies, which receive match funding from the Dutch government to improve the productivity and scalability of sustainable production and consumption. When people ask me which country is leading on sustainable business, I always point to the Netherlands and say, watch this space. Of course, the Dutch are horrified by this, as self-criticism is another national pastime they take very seriously. As far as I can see, it's win-win. The Dutch will continue to push themselves faster, further, higher in the sustainability Olympics, and the rest of the world will continue to benefit from the lessons they are learning.